0: Hi, everyone.
2: Welcome to the Team House. This is episode 53. I'm Jack Murphy here with co-host Dave Park. Today, we are really honored to have as our guest Ruben Garcia. Uh, As you you can see here, this gentleman, uh, Ruben is a Special Forces veteran, served multiple tours in Vietnam. He... uh, Uh, Immigrated here from Cuba, joined the army in 1956, joined special forces in 1961. Uh, As I've just mentioned, multiple tours in Vietnam, uh, deployments elsewhere into Latin America, which we'll also get into. Um, Had an amazing career going from the rank of private to major. And uh, today, Ruben, he uh, went to law school after he retired from the military and he continues to practice law to this day. And we're going to talk about all of this with Mr. Garcia tonight. Um, and I just want to say, uh, Ruben, thank you so much for taking time out of your Friday night to join us here.
3: My pleasure. Pleasure meeting you too.
2: Could we begin with uh, you just telling us a little bit about your family background and, and how you immigrated to the United States?
3: Yeah, that may be a little bit interesting. Some kind of personal uh, My father apparently decided he needed to be somewhere else when I was three years old. And he abandoned my mother and me and my three-month-old brother. And my mother had four brothers who had served in World War II. They had volunteered to join the Army in Cuba, the U.S. Army in Cuba, to serve in exchange for citizenship. And they went ahead and filled out the necessary paperwork to claim her. So my mom went to the military school where my dad had put us, and she kidnapped us, took us straight to the airport. Next thing you know, we are in Chicago. <laughs> and that's how I ended up in the United States. I worked at various jobs, went to school, worked at various jobs, and when I turned 18, I decided I wanted to join the Army. And that's what I did, May 28, 1956 two days after I turned 18 on the 26th. The rest is kind of like, not a very interesting history, but a history. (laughs) That's a
2: very interesting history. You were, uh, you know, you came into the army in a very interesting time and and were there in the early years of special forces. Um, But before that, you know, your first assignment was with the 82nd Airborne, right?
3: I went to the 82nd and first to the 307 Airborne Engineer. I didn't like the engineers, so I finagled a way to get over to the double nickel, the 505. and the 82nd, spent a short time there. Then I volunteered for Special Forces. At that time, it was kind of hard to get into SF. They wanted people who had combat experience already, and I didn't. But I kept hammering Annie, kept hammering Annie and eventually got and went over to what they called then the training group. And you receive your training there. We did some of our training in Camp McCall, the rest there around Bragg, had a training area called the Great Gabriel Demonstration Area, Mm -hmm. which was named after Gabriel, who had been killed in Vietnam, Sergeant Gabriel. And I ended up with a team, but first I was trying to get to Panama, because I spoke Spanish. But the Army, in its great wisdom, sent me to Okinawa. <laughs> you know? And for a while there, I was the uh, armorer of B Company of the 1st Special Forces Group. I finally got on a team, A113. Captain Fisher was the team leader. Master Sergeant Johansson was the team sergeant. Tosi, Mark Tosi, was the Intel sergeant and Thurman, what was, Thurman Ramsey was the heavy weapons and I was light weapons.
2: Reuben could you tell us um, before you know I, I want to hear more about your the detachment but could you tell us a little bit about what it was like going through special forces training back in, in
3: 1961? It was a little bit different I think than what they're doing today. Today I think it's very much pattern like the SEAL training, you know, picking up heavy logs and all that stuff. Back in my day, the idea was you don't have to train to be miserable. <laughs> you don't have to train to be, be miserable. We we train a lot over in Pisgah and in the Uwari Mountain Range in North Carolina. And the people in that area were extremely good people, friendly people. They cooperated with us a lot. Of course, you'll be going up the mountain and you run into a big agricultural patch of corn. Well, that corn was there for a purpose. That corn was there to make moonshine. And they would say to us, you guys go right ahead, but walk between the rows, don't knock down the corn. (laughs) Now they're growing other crops. (laughs) And uh, we went a lot of training out there. We did one training thing where we were trying to find a drop zone. And uh, we're standing there looking at it. And this guy comes up, pulls up in a pickup truck. And he said, what are you boys up to? We told him we're planning to drive some paratroopers in here tonight. He said, well, don't do that boy. That field is full of rattly snakes. And sure enough, you walked out there, rattlesnakes everywhere coming out of the holes. We had to find somewhere else. But the training was different than I think than it is today. Today they put emphasis on the physical fitness. You had to be fit in our day, but at the same time, this is what counted up here. Could you think your way out of the box? Could you get the job done? Could you go and get there without getting yourself killed and coming back? It was a different concept, but now it's a little bit different, I guess.
1: Ruben, it's funny because when you mention, you know, you don't have to train to be miserable, and you talk about SF training, if that, if those had been like rangers out there and somebody had said, oh, you don't want to jump there, there are rattlesnakes, those rangers have been like, yeah, that's a good spot. <laughs> let, let the young privates deal with it and see what happens.
3: I know, you know, when I came back from one of my tours, I went to the Camp Rudder in England Air Force Base to be an instructor there was there with Dick Meadows, who was, was a great soldier, wonderful person. He's dead now, God bless him. And uh, we trained no matter what the weather. Hurricane blowing through the, through the swamps, and we're out there. 17 degrees, and we're walking through swamp water, and then it starts raining. So you got the water coming down the crack of your butt, and coming up to your testicles in the swamp. And that was just the way it was. Yeah, right. I diddle diddle straight up the middle. <laughs> what what was uh, you know the concept in,
2: in your mind? I mean, I guess we were already involved in the Vietnam conflict, so all of you guys must have had some idea that sooner or later, after training, you were going to go to Vietnam.
3: I think you're absolutely right. We all knew that was the destination sooner or later, depending on the route that you took. But uh, I made it a point to study what had happened in Vietnam. Because I always felt it was more of a nationalist movement than a communist movement. And the reason I say that is because that was Ho Chi Minh's concept. I remember reading that he was interviewed when he was in France once. And he was asked, how can you as guerrillas beat the French? And he said, we will fight them like the tiger fights the elephant. We jump on its back. We scratch him, we bite him, and we run away, and he bleeds a little bit, and we come back and we bleed him a little more. And that's what they did. And eventually, this country got sick and tired of fighting with her, uh-huh. especially after Walter Cronkite came back and said, We lost, we hadn't. You know, 68, we beat the crap out of them. Uh-huh. But the problem was the, the psychologically, we in the United States were not ready to keep going on that war. That's all there was to it. We had a contact one time and uh, contact lasted, I think about 27 hours if I remember correctly. We ran into a couple of battalions. We, we took them apart pretty good. 11 helicopters got shot down or damaged pretty severely and had to put down somewhere bringing us ammo and stuff like that. And a general came out to visit us. I don't remember his name, to tell you the truth, but I remember the little pistol on his hip. And uh, he put his arm around my shoulder and he said, you guys are doing a great job. We're going to be out of here in six months. That was in 1964. Captain Fisher looked at me and he knew that I was about to open my mouth, and he said, "General, these guys are tired. They've been up all day and all night. Let's let them go get some chow and some rest." And off we went. <laughs> my ass! I'm sorry. So, I
2: don't know. No, it's okay. You can uh, you can use some some foul language on this show. I back to your first deployment to to Vietnam, Detachment One One Three. Uh, you are telling us about some of the men uh, you served on that, that team with. Can you tell us a about that deployment, about arriving in Vietnam? In uh, I mean, what, what year would that have been? It was still pretty early on in the, in the conflict.
3: 63. That was mm-hmm. 63. We flew into, first into Saigon. From there, we went on a train, and from there, we deployed. And that, that was in Ninh, and we were working with a cow die. Good people, the cow died. The area was supposed to be like about 82% pro-VC. And somebody mentioned, I didn't see the sign, but somebody mentioned that there was a sign by the side of the road when we were driving in in two and a half ton trucks that said, welcome to Vietnam Detachment 113. I don't know if, I didn't see the sign, but somebody said they saw it. So their intelligence was pretty, that was one of the problems at least back then. You know, you didn't know who to trust or what you could do or who you could talk to. And when you planned an operation, you had to be careful. If you wanted to plan, you know, artillery fire or anything else, they were going to know where you went and what you did. And so you had to be very careful about that.
2: You mentioned uh, in, uh, you know, some of the information you sent me about your deployment that the Th- this religious sect, the Kau Dai, that they they revered Charlie Chaplin as like a, a quasi deity.
3: In it, right in the middle of the Tainan city, there was a temple, and in the mid- and inside the temple, there's this big eye, and that's the all-seeing eye of the Kau Dai, and they believe in Buddhism, Taoism, and they, Victor Hugo is one of the deities. Charlie Chaplin, because he had brought humor to, to, the, to the people and to work. And from, this, and from the temple, there were four rows going out, going to the four points of the compass, east, west, north, and south, because their hope was one day that those roads would circumvent the world and bring people together. Good people. We had a little major by the name of, a, what was Tang, I think was his name. Into operations, all he carried was a little axe. And if his thing got out of line, he slapped him with the flat side of the axe on the side of the head. He was a brave man. He was up front all the time. And we got caught up in one ambush. And he had a bugler. And he blew charge. And we blew right through the middle of that L in the ambush. Got on the other side and broke it up. He was quite a fella. He did not tolerate any. For many of his men. The, the Cal had have fought everybody. They fought the Japanese, they fought the Chinese, they fought the French. They were pretty independent people. And
2: when you arrived there, could you tell us a little bit about the the uh, SFOB or the A camp that you were in? And you know what the what the mission was, what you guys were doing out there at that time.
3: At that point in time, 63, 64. We were going there on six-month tours. We weren't there for a year at that time. It was six-month tours. And uh, the uh, the concept, to be quite honest with you, was just to go out in operation and deny the VC from being able to get to the villages because they were taxing those people. They were taking their rights, they were grabbing their men and forcing them to fight for the VC. But in that area, it became kind of problematic because, like I said, there was supposed to be like about 82% pro-VC. So we would hear that there were some collecting rice and grabbing men, and we rush out there and try to stop them. We were also very near to a mountain that was called Black Widow Mountain. I forget the name in Vietnamese. I think of it probably as we're talking along. But they, they had a lot of people there they had case and they pretty much operated out of there in that area. At that time, it was kind of a complex situation, because a lot of our people have been, rec- by the people, I mean the indigenous soldiers that we had with us, they were recruited from jails. And some of them were being paid for the number of kills. So it got pretty hairy sometimes.
2: So they they were like criminals that had been hired, and, and there were like bounties out on on Americans.
3: Exactly, they they were recruited, and then they were working for us. We armed them, we clothed them, we fed them, and we go out on operations. Because initially, it was very difficult to get civilians, you know, who were honest rice field people, rice paddy people, to come and work. They right. didn't want any. Don't forget, from my point of view, the Vietnamese have been fighting everybody forever. And they're tired of it. They're tired of it.
2: And so how did things uh, go with, with these operations with the, the commander with his bugle uh, and, and hitting people in the, in the head with his, his, the side of his ax?
3: If a man did anything wrong, he held a trial. But of course, that's when we got back to camp. Put him in the middle of the circle there, and and if the if they were proven that he had done something wrong, say he stole something or he fell asleep during guard duty, he woke up and he would take the flat side of that hatchet and he go bang, bang him on the head, and that was the law. That was it. Case over. And, and and
2: you guys went out on operations. I I guess you were you were searching for the Viet Cong out out in the
3: jungle. Yeah, at that point in time, it was. It wasn't until later that we became aware that we were starting to get MVA coming down. On that one operation I was telling you about, all of a sudden we're up against people who were wearing khaki pants with the seam of the pants sewn in, sand brown belts. One of the guys we killed later on was identified as the commander of a battalion. Right. Right.
1: Was that a big change for you guys to realize that, that it had moved, that it wasn't just Viet Cong now, but it was, it was uh, North Vietnamese regulars?
3: Absolutely, because they were very well trained now. They were disciplined. Maybe the discipline was because if they didn't do what they were told, they'd get shot, but they were disciplined, and they would fight to the last man. It was very interesting to see the transition. But the problem was you never knew who you were up against. When the shooting started, you know, it gets very chaotic, very disorganized. Right. And sometimes you'll be out there for days, let's be honest. Sometimes you'll be out there for days and make no contact because they're avoiding you. They're running like hell or they're, or they're sniping at you. We had one operation where we had a, an L-19 airplane spotting for us. And he got shot down, but he landed the thing in a clearing. And he's between us and the guys on the other wood line. And they're shooting past uh, past him at us. And all he's got is a little thirty-eight that he carried in a shoulder holster. We finally got him out of there. The next time we saw that guy, he had an airplane full of armament. He had everything you could think of, hand grenades. <laughs> whatever he agreed. Of course, in those days, we didn't have the uh, M16 yet. I took out a Thompson submachine gun on one operation. Never again. That damn thing is so heavy and the <laughs> ammunition never again. From then on, I just stuck with my at that time, we had the M14. Yeah. From that I stuck with my M14. A couple of times, I took out a carbine and we also had access to some of the French weapons, the Mat. And we had some uh, stun guns, mm-hmm. some stun guns with silencers. We had all kinds of weird stuff back in those days. And, and of course, and, as, a, as a weapons man, you had a training all the different weapons, so you could use whatever you wanted or whatever you found whenever you had it to use it.
1: And what did you prefer? Like, what what was your normal loadout when you would go out? What did you like to carry?
3: Well, back in that day, I probably carried a basic load of ammunition, about 220 rounds. Sometimes you wish you had more. Sometimes you wish you had less, but the bottom line was that you carried about 220 rounds and several hand grenades. And we we were carrying uh, claymores. And when you set up at nine, you set out your claymores out in a perimeter.
1: Yeah, uh, and then what? Uh, what weapon systems did you did you carry, or the other
3: guys like
1: what, what uh, cars, or did you like the AKs, or what did you typically prefer?
3: We didn't have access to AKs. We had access to M1s. Some of the guy, there was one guy that carried an M1 with the MC1, you know, with a scope and all that stuff, but we never got a chance to do much of that. Most of the stuff was just, you know, you hear them out there, they hear you, they shoot, you shoot back. Sometimes you don't know if you hit anybody or not. You know when they hit your guys, now theirs. Yeah. And they were very good about carrying their dead away. They did not leave their dead laying around. They carried them away. I don't know whether that was a principle of no man left behind, which is a way of denying us knowing how successful we had been.
2: Yeah. And you had also mentioned that Robin Moore showed up at the camp.
3: Robin Moore, yeah. (laughs) He came out to the camp and he was there and about just before he left, uh, they got one of Ramsey Thurman's uh, berets and gave it to him as a presentation. And a couple of days later, they sent some people out there to get him. He had been declared by the Vietnamese a persona non grata because he had made some comments about the poor fighting conditions of the Vietnamese and how poorly they fought and how they would run away sometimes during contacts. And he, if you look at the first edition of his book, he mentions that about the beret and being with our camp in Tây in the last chapter. Since then, that book I think has been revised and he's added more to it. And I don't know if it's still in there or not.
2: I'm going to uh, bring up a picture. This might be from one of uh, your later deployments, but I just wanted to show people this. Um, and there, there is uh, Ruben on the uh, right-hand side.
3: And the guy on the left is B.T. Collins. BT got out. he while well, we were in operation up in the mountain BT was down with a captain uh, God, I can't remember I can't remember that guy's name I always have a hard time he came in later and BT got in a firefight in the swamp and there was a hand grenade thrown and he reached down into the water to get it and the hand grenade went off took off his right arm and his left leg uh-huh. His sister wrote a book about him called Outrageous Hero. After he got out, he went to Santa Clara Law School and then later on became Governor Brown's Chief of Staff and later on became a Councilman in California. Wow. He got of uh, going to a hotel to listen to Colin Powell give a speech. And we, and all of us who knew him, Henry Cook and I, we said, well, BT always managed to you know, just jump right in there and take the limelight.
2: Are <laughs> uh, there any other like memorable moments from that deployment? Memorable, either memorable people or memorable firefights or any, any you guys getting into trouble or anything that stands out?
3: The, the entire camp used to be a French camp before we took it over many years before, but another team from the first had been there. And uh, the entire camp was surrounded by a berm. And there were all these holes in the berm and there were rats. Rats lived in there. And somebody got the bright idea. Well, one night I was on guard duty. Let me digress for a second. I was on guard duty because we would keep guard of our own area independent on the Vietnamese to guard us. And I went into the mess hall. I cooked myself an egg, made myself an egg sandwich with some French bread. And I put my cup of coffee down by the sandbags. When I went to reach down for the sandbag to grab the cup of coffee, I grabbed the rat. <laughs> I tell you what, I jumped right out of my boots just about. But the burn was full of those big, I'm talking about big rats. I'm talking about rats about a foot and a half long, with a tail another foot and a half long.
2: Ruben, is is that why you have that cat behind you on your desk? Because you have a a permanent aversion to rats? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely.
3: And the burn was full of all these tunnels made by the rats. And somebody got the wise idea to take one of those weed burners and let's burn the rats out of there. And they did. But the rats caught on fire and then started running through the camp Catching ho- hoot- hoots and ho- hooches on fire. <laughs> and it, we never did that again. But. That is actually, funny. We had, we had a guy come out. He was a captain. He had been an NCO before. And he was coming out with some crypto paths for us, you know, one time pets and he flew over the head in a caribou and he jumped out and he jumped out with a briefcase full of cryptopaths and he lands just outside our perimeter. So now we're standing on the burn, waving at him and he's coming toward us. The problem was he was coming right through the minefield. And we're waving at him, go back, go back. And he's waving at us like, Hello. Finally, somebody shot around and he stopped dead in his tracks. And we, somebody got a megaphone and told him, Back up, you're walking through a minefield. And we had to go out and go around about a quarter of a mile to get him out of there. But those, some, you know, something to laugh about.
1: Ruben, for our viewers who don't know or our listeners who don't know, what, what is a crypto pad? Because we're talking way before modern encryption and things like that.
3: Yeah we used to get these pads and you use one sheet to send one message and you every day you tore them up and they were like on tissue paper and then you destroyed it and every day if you had to send an operation message or you had to send a report of any kind every day you you wrote an update you used that pad and you used that encryption to encrypt the message to send it out. Because as you know, our, all of our guys were good with a Morse code, right? The uh, radio operators had to be able to send like 18 words a minute. Those are the rest of us who train, just as a backup, seven words a minute. And if you knew who was, even if you didn't know who was sending, you could tell by the way he, he clicked that thing, the rhythm that he used. And that was the crypto That's
1: amazing.
2: And, and, and they had to be hand delivered, as there's no other way to do it back then, right?
3: Well, you had to go get them. Either you either you went to Saigon, and you picked them up and brought them back, or somebody had to bring them to you. I'll be honest with you, I don't know why that guy was delivering them. Maybe he just wanted to jump out of that caribou. Yeah.
1: Get his combat jump.
3: Uh, no, I don't think he got credit for that. <laughs> However, he almost, he almost would have been in combat if he stepped on any of those mines out there. <laughs> Some of those mines have been there since the French were there. Yeah. And,
1: and who, because we've talked to people, we've talked about the Montagnards before, we've talked about the Hmong before, and you told us a little bit about the Khaldai and and their sort of religious and spiritual beliefs, but were they also another indigenous tribe uh
3: native to that area, They are and not very well accepted by regular Vietnamese but of course the Hmong years are up in they were up in I Corps second Corps I was down in fourth Corps for this particular tour as a matter of fact both my tours were in fourth Corps and so the bottom line is that yeah they they had their own concepts their own beliefs and they were generally not accepted by For example, the Vietnamese Special Forces didn't like to really work with them. We had a couple of Vietnamese Special Forces people with us in the camp, in that particular camp. But they didn't like, no, they didn't accept them.
1: Was it just because of cultural differences, or was it more just sort of a racial sort of uh, kind of stereotyping or or, uh, preference?
3: I think it was a combination of both. To tell you the truth. You know, they were they had different concepts, different cultural beliefs, different religious beliefs. They live isolated from everybody else. They didn't they didn't really want anything to do with the Vietnamese either. They just want to be left alone. Right. Just like the mountaineers. The mountaineers were good people. They just want to be left alone. To live their life the way they wanted to live it.
2: So tell us then a little bit about what happened after your first tour in Vietnam, that you went back to Okinawa and there are some other things in, in Asia that you got sucked up into,
0: right?
3: Well, after I got back to Oki, we found out that the 503rd was being turned into the 173rd Airborne Brigade. And I got a call one day that they were going to be sent to Taiwan for a pre-deployment to Vietnam exercise, sort of a shakeout. And we went over there, and then I was a re- like a referee or an umpire with one of the battalions. And I was supposed to be with a captain.
0: Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today.
2: I'm an aficionado.
0: I'm a sneakerhead. I'm a foodie. Gamer. I'm a gym rat.
2: There are many names for enthusiasts. A fashionista. But there's only one way to become one. By going All in. The Lexus IS sports sedan is our obsession, relentlessly engineered and designed to be the most responsive IS ever. It's what we
1: call going all in on the sports sedan. The Lexus IS, experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Click the banner to discover more.
3: I remember his name, but I'm not going to mention it. We got to, they they had to do a river crossing. And this captain said to me, you go with them, I'm going to take the Jeep. And I'm going to cross on the bridge, and I'll meet you on the other side. Well, they went ahead and put the smoke to make the river crossing, and they deployed the smoke too soon and too far up, and it kind of blew all the way, and here came the Taiwanese jets strafing, you know, a mock strafing. Got to the other side, and who do I run into? General Acosta. And he says, Sergeant Garcia, where's Captain So-and-so? I said, sir, he's over there on the other side. And he said, did you grade these people? I said, yes, sir. He said, what did you think was their casualty rate on that river cross? I said, about 35%. He said, yeah, absolutely. That was smoke was blown too soon. And they had no cover going across that river. So then... He says, get in the Jeep. I got in the Jeep. He drove to where the captain was, and he said, Captain, you report back to uh headquarters. You're going back to Okinawa tomorrow. You should have been crossing that river with Sergeant Garcia. I was a sergeant at the time.
2: Was this about the time that you started having thoughts about going to OCS and becoming an officer yourself?
3: I did, yes. Uh, When I got back to Okinawa, I told my wife. She was there with my son. I love the Okinawa people. Let me digress a minute. I rented a house on the economy, you know, because I didn't have enough rank to get housing on post. And the people who I rented the house from were Okinawans. A couple of interesting stories there. So at night, we had a couple of people break in on two occasions and one I had a little bit of a tête-à-tête with. We won't get into that, but enough that he left for my knife stuck on his neck. I'll say that much and that's it. Then I started to chase him and I realized, wait a minute, he's got my knife. <laughs> he pulled it out and threw it on the middle of the road. I picked it up and that was that. So when I left for Okinawa and Taiwan, The owner of the house, uh, Okinawan, he came over one day with some people and he put bars on all the windows. So I would feel that my family was being protected while I was away in Vietnam or anywhere else. They were very nice people. When I pay my rent every month, I had to go over there and sit down and, and have tea with him. It wasn't just walk in and here's the money. No, it had to be like a little ceremony. Yeah. We had to exchange greetings. We had to ask about the family. It was all very good. And uh, one day, I'm walking. I used to take the bus back from where my uh, where my station was, where to where my family was living. And all of, I'm walking down, and I hear this voice say in Spanish, "Excuse me, do you speak Spanish?" And I turn around and all I see is oriental faces. So I kept walking, the guy said it again. I turned around and the guy went like this. And he was an Okinawan. Interesting story. He lived in Argentina because in 1905, his father who had fought in the Russo, excuse me, in the Russo-Japanese War in 1905, his father had been drafted by the Japanese. And fought in that war and he foresaw second world war coming and he sent his son to Argentina the son always thought that it was because his father didn't love him now the father was dying so he had to come back and take over the family he loved to come to my house and have rice and beans because he said he was tired of no beans he just rice But yes, I did decide that I wanted to go to OCS and I applied, fill out all the form. Went before a board, my team leader, Captain Fisher recommended me. And I went back to the United States in 1965 to go to OCS, been in school for boys.
2: And back in those days, it's, I think it's important to mention too, Special Forces wasn't a branch. It wasn't really like a career field. And what that meant was that for, for Ruben, for you, you, you had to fight to get back into special forces throughout your career.
3: Absolutely, because we, we weren't exactly appreciated or anybody thought very much of us. When President Kennedy granted us the beret after a demonstration at Mud Lake, which later I, I ended up out there with what was then called Previously called Blue Light, later became Special Operations Training. And uh, we were like the bastard children, you know, nobody really wanted to have us around. The beret was at first totally denied. When people went on the field, they were boni- they wore the beret, but back in garrison you couldn't. Finally, Kennedy said, I'll grant it to you. Interesting point. They started wearing the beret at Fort Bragg a year before we started wearing it in Okinawa. The first Special group was the last group to officially be allowed to wear the beret. And if you look at the flash for, special, for the first Special Forces, it's yellow, right, gold. And it has a black rim around it. That black rim was in honor of Jack Kennedy in perpetual mourning. A lot oh. of people don't. The original one was solid yellow. Solid goal. And then when Kennedy got assassinated, and I was in Vietnam in November of 63 when he was assassinated, I remember coming back from an, a patrol, and the flag was a half mast and I was immediately told, we're in a uh, triple shotgun alert. And I said, why? I said, Kennedy was killed, and we were expecting the camp might be attacked. Of course, we weren't, but Yeah, at that time, Special Forces was not exactly anybody's love affair. Uh-huh. We, we were people that we were our own, our own mind. We operated differently. We worked differently. Like I said, we didn't want to practice to be miserable. We just got the job done. Uh-huh. What was the old saying? Special Forces carries a bigger low Penetrates deeper and stays longer.
2: <laughs> right, I, I thought it was, uh, we fuck, we fight, we boogaloo. Huh.
0: <laughs> yes, sir. The,
2: uh, Ruben, as a, uh, a freshly minted uh, lieutenant, I was wondering if you, if you could tell us a story about going down to Venezuela um, and train uh, the soldiers in counterinsurgency tactics.
3: After I, when I went, when I I graduated from OCS, I got assigned, much to my surprise, to the 8th Special Forces Group in Panama. But it wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. When I got there, it turns out I've been assigned to the Ninth war Detachment, because down in Panama, they had what they call SAF, Mm -hmm. Special Mm Operations Force, and they had an Intelligence Detachment, Engineering Detachment, and... uh, anything you could think of so i got assigned to nine side i stayed there for about three or four months maybe five and then i went over to b company and i got assigned to a team with captain david decker who later on was killed that To in november of 1963 no excuse me in 66 that was much later and david was a fine officer a good man And we went to Panama and we were staying in a little camp near the Colombian border. And we were training their soldier in counterinsurgency operations. You know, it's not easy for people to pick up that concept. It really is not. It takes a certain mentality to operate in what I would call a guerrilla environment. There's no high diddle-diddle straight up the middle. You have to be oblique about it. You have to be able to keep your eyes and ears open and know and give the enemy credit for what he is. He is not stupid. He's smart. He, and he knows that jungle better than you do. And so we trained them. Some interesting thing happened when we were there. One day we were out training, and all of a sudden we hear this incredible thunderous racket and there was a river nearby. So we were running over there. Apparently the snow had melted up in the mountain and the water was coming down these rivers. And I swear to God, you not believe this. It was bouncing boulders the size of houses. And that was the noise, bang, they were banging again and going up in the air 30, 40 feet, landing back in the river or on the shore. And we had to get the hell out of there. another time I come back and six of my guys are around something. They're looking at it and they're jumping back and forth. Turned out to be a mamba. Wow. I said, we we used to, in the Panama, we used to bring back whatever snakes we found anywhere so we could use them to teach people how to identify. Do the same thing in ranger training, right? And uh, as, at least in the Florida phase of it. And uh, I see this mamba there. Now, you know you get bit by that thing. We're out in the middle of nowhere. You're dead. I'm not having it. I took out my 45, I shot them up. I said, now you can put it in the jar." <laughs> but I wasn't playing with the thing. But we were what? there for eight weeks training them and went back to Panama. Out of the eighth, you might find this interesting. The 8th Special Forces Group sent a team to Bolivia to train the Bolivian Rangers that ultimately killed Che Guevara. Mm-hmm. I wasn't part of that. But the a Special Forces group, sent a team out of there. I think they've written a book about it. The team that went down there. And they're Re- the ones with tra- Rangers who eventually got Guevara.
1: Ruben, you, you mentioned, uh, you bring up some interesting points about uh, counterinsurgency and, and guerrilla warfare. That they know how to jungle better than you. Um, and and you know not underestimating your enemy, and and I think we've seen that you know in in almost every counterinsurgency, like including Afghanistan, you know all these different places, they're just better in their environment than we are, and typically for whatever reason, than than the indigenous troops that we work with a lot of times also. How do, I mean, Americans generally grow up. Uh, and not quite as an challenging environment, right? we We don't we don't have to rely on natural resources as much as they do, things like that. How do Americans uh, compensate for that when they get into those environments? and then how do we pass that on to indigenous soldiers that we are responsible for training?
3: That's a wonderful question. I believe that our mentality and by our, I mean here in the United States, and actually, I think even, Most angles, our mentality is straight shot. You can't work that way when you're in a counter-surgery environment. It's differently. You get to a place, you stop. You listen. You look. You wait for the other guy to move. If you move first, he knows where you are. I'm sorry. My phone's ringing. It's probably my wife
2: apologize to her for me please
3: honey give me a second i'm on the i'm on the web page Zoom thing okay i'll call you back later and so uh, we need to have the patience to understand and get acclimated understand the environment and you need to get into the other guy's head you need to know what he's thinking. What is he planning to do? Well, you know he's gonna work from an ambush standpoint. Wow. That's what he wants to do. He's gonna hit and he's gonna run. He's not gonna give you a high diddle diddle straight up the middle fight. Right. It ain't gonna work that way. He doesn't wanna do it that way. He's not in a position to do that. He knows you have artillery. He knows you have airplanes. He knows you have support. He knows. He's carrying a certain amount of ammunition, a bottle of water, and a little packet of rice, and maybe some dry fish. And that's it. By the way, when we went out on operations, I insisted that all my guys eat exactly the same thing that they were eating, that our troops were eating. Why? And no, and no coffee. There's no, You know, tea smells different when it's brewing than coffee. If you're brewing coffee out in the jungle, the enemy knows you're American. Uh-huh. And if you eat something different than what the uh, indigenous people eat, you smell differently. When you've been out there several days or several, you know, when in the mobile guerrilla company, we were committed for a month at a time. By the time you got back, throw away that uniform and burn it. Don't even try to wash it. Because as you're burning, you're creating ammonia. As you're burning your, you know the protein in your body, you're creating ammonia. And you stink, uh-huh. you really stink. And so you have to get ready to think in the terms of what the environment is and what you're up against. You have to learn to deal with yourself, not just the enemy. Because he's smart, he knows the trails, he knows how to live out there. He's lived out there his whole life. And so I think it's difficult for us. Not only that, we think we can just use power. We can just come in with brute force and run right over them. And you can't because they're not going to give you a fight. They're going to drop back. They're going to rope a dope you. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Ruben, that kind of brings us into uh you know your second tour in Vietnam, 1966, um, which sounds it sounded incredibly dangerous from what you had described to me. I was just wondering if you could tell us about it was detachment four one
1: five.
3: Yeah, I got there and I think the name of the place was Tui Num, but I don't remember exactly. I've been there maybe like about four weeks for a while. I went to work with a indigenous civilian force. But at that time, the area was flooded and somebody had the bright idea to bring airboats. Well, the airboat moved you over that swampy, flooded area. But at the same time, if you encounter somebody, what you had to do, you had to, if, if they fire at you from a hammock, let's say, and you're out there in the water, you got to, I don't know if I can explain this, maybe you can see me. One airboard had to come in engaging and firing, and the other boy had to be right there engaging before you turn because once you turn your back, they're firing into your into your airboard, they're the firing fan. into the uh, mm-hmm. and if they hit and if they hit that that, that propeller, that's it that airboard is down. And once that propeller took a shot, it shattered itself because it was out of balance. So you had to come in like circling the wagons, engaging. Not only that, but the airboat is nothing but fiberglass. So whoever had that idea, maybe it was a good idea the first couple of times. Mm -hmm. They caught on to it. They sit in the wood line, they sit in the hammocks and they just fire there. I knew several guys that got killed out there on those airboats. But I've been there about four or five weeks. We're now maybe on two or three operations on the airboats. The place had been flooded. You could see the water marks in the hooches. And uh, I got a message that a helicopter was coming to pick me up. They flew me back to Canto and the executive officer of the sea detachment who was uh, Texas Sam. I always have trouble with forgetting his last name. I think I wrote it to you. Can you say it to me? I forget it. Uh, but he oh. called me in. And he, said, he says, Colonel Kelly has directed. Colonel Kelly was the commandant, commander of Special Forces, the Special Forces Group in Vietnam at that time. And he said, Colonel Kelly has directed that every corps is going to have a mobile guerrilla company. And we are behind the power curve on that. So I want you to pick the guys that you want. And I want you... We're going to give you a company of Wahao. Now, Wahao were flatlanders. They were not people who worked in the mountains. And you're going to take them and you're going to train them, handpick the people you want. That handpicking kind of fell apart because none of the other team leaders wanted to give up their business. Good guys, you know. And we went to Fukuwa Island. Fukuwa Island is a little island that's just off the western coast of Vietnam. And we started training over there. We pitched tents right alongside the airstrip, and we started training. Now we were supposed to train for eight weeks, but at the end of about four weeks, we got told that we're going up to Nui Koro because the Mike force is coming in to jump in from a train. And uh, Ruben,
2: uh, Major Sam Jeffers. Yeah, Sam Jeffers, Texas Sam. Was and the and the the were like a Buddhist um, sect or cult, also weren't they? They were a religious minority.
3: The Hao they are, yeah. And it turned out to be a problem because we ended up going up in the mountains for an operation, and the Hao didn't like being there. They said, "We're not mountain people. We don't want to be here." Yeah. And they started deserting. And Colonel and Major Marachek, who at the time had the mic for us, came in to round them up. And we went down the side of the mountain, and then they surrounded them all. He took all their weapons, took all their equipment. We put them on caribou's and flew them back to their homes. Yeah, it was a big, a big fiasco to tell you the truth.
1: Who, uh, who decided that like Plains people or Flatlanders would make? up a a mobile force that would operate in the mountains where did that decision come from
3: actually it got me in a little bit of trouble because when i got back <laughs> wrote sort of a scathing letter that said you know just because you give them a fancy hat and a fancy name mobile gorilla whatever you didn't give us enough time to train we weren't ready to go up in that mountain turn into a fiasco yeah yeah
1: and there, there's a substantial difference between you know working with people who have never been around mountains and training them to work in mountains and using people who who grew up in the mountains and are just used to that that way of life the the you know the uh, elevation walk working in that
3: kind of environment where it's constantly up or downhill it's very different they did not like it they did yeah. not like it As a matter of fact we had a one bed instance there we went up into Nuikai Mountain, which is the one that's the closest or farthest away from the Cambodian border, because it's an area called the Seven Mountains area. And we went up there and at the base of the mountain, there was an airstrip and a camp of regular Arvin and US advisors. And they did not tell us that they were gonna go up in the mountain in the next three or four days for training. And they took a platoon up there and we had an ambush set up and we shot him up. It was very sad and very bad, and of course, all kinds of repercussions, but that's what happens. Yeah. We set up an ambush one night. This is a little kind of humorous aside. We set up an ambush one night. And it gets cool up in those mountains, even though it's Vietnam and you just think it's it's hot all the time. It's not. The temperature drops up there in those mountains. In some of those mountains, you can look down and see the clouds. So we're in the ambush, and I'm laying there. Actually, I'm kind of sitting up because I'm pretty good at staying awake. But I most have just kind of nodded off momentarily. We've been up all night, and I heard a noise behind me. And I swear to God, I said, damn it, they got behind me. And I don't know how to explain this. I tighten up every muscle in my back like if that would stop a bullet, you know? <laughs> and I turned around and I started firing without even looking. Let him get down. Well, it turned out to be a bunch of Javalis. Those are those wild pigs. They were out there rooting. And they come <laughs> up, and find them. care the hell out of us. But the next day those guys had a lot of pork to eat. <laughs> Ruben,
2: uh, after that first kind of failure with the, the mobile guerrilla force and, and not maybe having the right indigenous force to train up, what, was there a second effort to, to stand up that force and, and create that unit?
3: When I, when I came... When, I don't know if I should be saying this or not, but when I came back, I was originally put in charge of that first company. Mm-hmm. And when, I, and when after that operation went bad, and, Cur- and Major Marachek later, he became a lieutenant colonel and he was up in uh, a JFK center. I think he was the assistant S3 for General McMahon. And uh, I came back down, and I was told to report to To Toshow was going to be the camp, which is on the coast, just below a little town called Hatian, across the river. And to report out there, I didn't. And the reason was, the person that they appointed to be in charge of the Mo Gorilla Company at the time was someone I had no respect for. Absolutely none. I won't mention his name, but if he's listening, he knows who he is. And I refused to go out there. And I just stayed in canto. One day I'm in the shower and the colonel who was the lieutenant colonel who was in charge of the C team saw me in the shower and he says, I thought you were going to toe show. I said, Not yet, sir. Not as long as so-and-so is out there. Well, it turned out that this guy had done something that I won't get into detail that wasn't exactly kosher to use that word. And he got relieved. And then I went out there. At that time, B.T. Collins was the executive officer of the one detachment. Henry was the executive officer, of my detachment. And then later on that captain who's in the middle of that picture that you should show a little while ago whose name I can't remember.
2: Uh, Sorry, Ruben, this one right here.
3: Yeah. that him right there. He came in later and he became the team leader of one team. And then when and then about after that last operation, I got pulled back to canto and I became the assistant three. And he took over the camp. And then later on, they started filling in other people. And I don't know any of them.
2: But uh, then what was this? Uh, you were part of the, uh, a pretty significant battle in that Seven Mountain region, uh, you guys and Mike Forrest. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that battle and what happened out there?
3: Well, that's the one where Master Sergeant Kittleson got wounded in the nose. Like I told you, if somebody sent me a message saying somebody's shooting at us. Well, we kept going up the mountain. We got to a certain point, And as we came around, uh, up, that mountain has got some big granite boulders. I mean, huge things. And as we came around some of that rocky area, we took fire. And I'm sorry to say this, but the majority of the troops scattered. When we finally rounded everybody together, I was missing 42 guys. And they weren't dead. They just wow. decided, they just decided they didn't want to fight. So Master Sergeant Kittleson and I came up behind one of these rocks. And I looked across, and I gotta tell you, this is the only guy I'm sure I ever took down. He was wearing a Sam Brown belt, he had on a pith helmet, he had a whistle in his mouth, and he was blowing the whistle and giving orders, and he had a pistol in his hand. And at that time, I got an AR-15. And I brought it down in the middle of his chest, I pulled the trigger, he slammed against the rock, The pith helmet popped like this and he slid down. That's the only guy I can say that I'm sure that I killed in Vietnam. A lot of firefights, a lot of shooting. Henry came running up and I said, Henry, give me four men and put them over there on the left flank. And Henry said, Ruben, I don't have four men. They had scattered all away. "Henry, (laughs) Henry started running in the direction where he thought he'd find four men and all of a sudden I heard a shot. And I, you know, you get to where you can recognize the weapon by its report. You can tell the difference between an AK-47 and a uh, and an AR-15 or an M16. And I am sure that that was a sniper rifle and that it was a Mauser 8 millimeter. And it took the hat right off of Henry's head. Miss Henry by a hair, like he had a hole in his hat. Wow. So Henry runs over to where a bunch of guys are hiding in a hole. He, Henry used to carry a sort of carbine and he stuck it in there and he fired a burst. And he chased them all out of there and took them over on the left flank where I wanted it. That firefight lasted probably for about 30, 35 minutes. And then they withdrew. I think it's because I took down that one guy. I don't want to give myself credit or anything like that. But I took down that one guy.
2: Because he, he was like a captain or something like that. Daiwi. At
3: that time, I was still a, a lieutenant.
2: A, no, but the, the guy you shot, he had the whistle in his mouth. He was probably an yeah. officer.
3: Yeah, he was the commander. And he was blowing the whistle and giving instruction. But I happened to see him. And Kittleson was right next to me. And we took a shot against the rock. And a piece of rock, the, the round had to have gone between us. I mean, there's no other way. The round had to have gone between us. And uh, Kittleson took a piece of shrapnel in the nose, either from the casing of the bullet or from a piece of rock. He was, he was wounded in doubt. Could you
2: tell us a little he, bit more about Pappy Kittleson? Because he's like a Special Forces legend. There's a book out there about him. Incredible yes, person.
3: Raider. By the way, you know that picture you had of me with another guy standing next to me and I got a cup in my hand? Mm-hmm. If you put your back up, I'll point something yep. out to you.
2: Yep, I'll pull that up. Okay. Uh, one second. I'm sorry. Ah, here we go.
3: Okay. If you would look at that picture, there's a guy by my elbow who is bandaged up across the face down here. See him? See that bandage? He's got bandage all around, him, Right. He's got bandage around his face like this, and he's got bandage going around the back of his head. That was my, radio, my indigenous radio operator. And you see the guy behind me holding his hand up? He got his finger shot off. That's why it's bandage.
1: Oh, yeah. I didn't see that initially.
3: This guy down here by my elbow, he was my radio operator. As you know, the PRC-7 only has like about a seven-foot cord, right? So he's right here behind me. And the round came in front of my face, had to, because it went on him and one one part of his joint liked in the other. That's why he's bandaged up the way you see him. Wow. And that was on on an operation up in the mountains. And uh, as you can see, we all wore the same tiger stripes. And it's cold, so I'm wearing my little sweater there.
2: And... I wanted to see if you could tell us a little bit about uh, about Pappy Kittleson, though, uh, before moving on.
3: When Master Shining Kittleson came out, I knew of his reputation. He had been a Sunte Raider. He had been in Burma with uh, Merrill's Marauders under uh, Bittinger Joe Stilwell during those operations. Those guys went through hell. Uh-huh. Those You talk about jungle fighting. Those guys went through it. And Kittleson was well known. He was a massive man, big chest, as tall as I am now. And when he reported out there, he hadn't been there two days when we got the orders to go on that operation. And I said, Master Sergeant Kittleson, you just got here. If you want to wait and get acclimated a little bit, he said, no, Lieutenant. When the team goes out, I go out with the team. And he was right there. And we went out on that operation. He was a tough soldier. I don't know about his previous background, but when he was with me, and one of the, well, after that operation, one of the highest compliments I think anybody ever paid me, he said, Lieutenant, I'll follow you anywhere you go. and coming from Master Sergeant Kittleson, I gotta tell you, even today it chokes me up.
2: He's one of the probably most well-respected uh, NCOs in Special Forces history to this day.
3: Him and Dick Meadows.
2: I wanted to show you, and I, I know you've, you've seen this before, Ruben, But when I was doing a little bit of research to prepare for this episode, this article I found uh, that mentions you, and it mentions Pappy Kittleson, um, and it mentions this battle that we've been talking about, written by your teammate Henry Cook. And there's one part in this article where uh, Mr. Cook says that you, Lieutenant Garcia, the operation commander, called for the force to fix bayonets and attack to the
3: front. Well, I'll tell you the truth. There were, we all of a sudden, we started taking pretty heavy fire. And I knew a lot of the guys had skedaddle on me. We didn't have the people. And so I said to Henry, Henry, I don't know what's coming. Fix bayonets and, let, and this may get to be hand to hand. And we gave the order, those that remain fixed bayonets. The other was <laughs> <laughs> Right, right, right. <laughs> I don't know where the hell they went or where they were, but you know, you do what you think you need to do at that moment. You don't think about it; it's all a matter of reaction. If You ain't got time to stop and think. You you give a command which you think you need to do something like that at that moment in time. Other than that, you just don't.
1: Ruben, I'm, sorry. I, I'm sorry. Sorry, Jack, did you want to continue that thought? Go,
2: no go ahead, go ahead, Dave.
1: Reuben, I was going to ask you I, when when Masterland Kittleson said that he'd follow you anywhere I, and, and it obviously means a lot to you you know and meant a lot to you and still does. did that have any kind of profound effect on you in terms of I mean, had you doubted your own leadership ability up to that point or, I mean, obviously there's always self-reflection going on, but was that like a a solidifying moment in your career as an officer?
3: You know, I believe that, I think you hit the nail on the head because here was a man, I mean, he had fought World War II against the Japanese. He had fought in Korea. He was now in Vietnam and by the way, That operation was his first combat operation in Vietnam. I think he mentions that in the book Raider or at least the writer mentions that. I have all the respect in the world for Master Sergeant Kittleson. I don't know who the writer was, never met him. He never talked to me. He never asked me anything about that operation. So apparently, he just either decided to make some things up to make the book interesting but he didn't need to because Kittleson was everything that any soldier could ever expect to be, wanna be, and somebody that you wanna have with you. He was right there next to me. His shoulder was against my shoulder when we were firing over that rock. And when that bullet hit the rock, and I don't know if it was a piece of the, you know, the the copper off the bullet, or if it was a piece of the rock that hit him on the nose. And he looked at me and he said, I got hit. And I said, yes, sir. And he was bleeding there. But it wasn't a really bad one. He survived it, thank God. I don't think I ever would have gotten over the fact that I'd have lost him. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it had a great deal of meaning to me because here was a man who had proven his valor in his medal. In three wars, he was a Sante Raider. What those guys did, you know what the risk they took going there? Yeah, meant a great deal to me, and to this day it does. When I think about it, I'm sorry, but I I get somewhat emotional.
2: When did did the, the battle, when did the tide turn on that battle? Because you guys did take that hill. Eventually,
3: we did. We did. But the bottom line is you know, in this environment, when you say take that hill, can I say that we drove them off or did they just decide to withdraw? Right, right. I'm not going to bullshit you. I don't know. Maybe they had enough. Maybe they were anticipating okay, we hit them, we, we took our toe. Now let's withdraw before they start calling in air or anything else and yeah we did but I can't say that this was you know Custer's last stand absolutely not <laughs> do <laughs> we, do,
2: do, you, do you want to say yeah. anything about the uh, the legendary special forces after party that uh, that Henry cook wrote about <laughs> in his article? <laughs>
3: We get, you know, I had a rule when we were back at camp. If we've been in an operation, the rule was, you know, a team is 12 guys, right? Now I think it's 15, but they they changed it. But the rule was six can drink. And by drink, I mean booze. And six have to stay sober. That was the rule. So that night it was Henry's turn to drink we had a bunker where we kept our ammunition. You know, I dug in, then build over and then lots of dirt and sand over it. And in the morning, I didn't go in there, I wasn't drinking. As a matter of fact, I didn't drink a glass of wine until I was in my 60s. But the team sergeant comes, no, not the team sergeant, the team uh, medic comes over, he says, sir, Nobody hit the lieutenant. I said, what do you mean nobody hit the lieutenant? He said, yes, sir. (laughs) Yes. And what had happened was Henry started drinking, celebrating his first combat experience. And he's sitting on top of ammo boxes. And when he went to step down, he misjudged how far the ground was. And he went He hit one of those ammo boxes right there, right there. And you know those ammo boxes are that rough wood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of wide open. So I said, where's the lieutenant? He says, he's over in the medical check. So I went over there and there's Henry laying there. And I said, Henry, you're going to be a training aid. And he said, what do you mean? I said, everybody on the team is going to take one stitch. I'm going to take two. I'll take the first one and I'll take the last one. And you'll always remember this. And that way everybody's getting training in case they got somebody up in the field. And everybody took a stitch on Henry's eye. And to this day, well, Henry's dead now. He died of a... He had to have a little transplant. And he didn't recover from it very well. I went to see him and he had the tube in him and all that. He couldn't breathe anymore. And he asked that they take the two bars so he could talk to me. And he couldn't. He was gasping for breath. And he said, Ruben, I'm sorry. I said, Don't worry, Harry. A couple of weeks later, he passed away. Harry was very active in the Purple Heart. He got wounded later on in 1968 during the Tet Offensive. Took a hit in the leg. Harry's an interesting story. He had been in the guard. And when Vietnam started going, Henry said, I'm going active, and he joined. And then later on, when the Kuwait thing uh, parked up, Henry came back in and was up there from Tampa working with special operations people up there. He was very much of a soldier, good man. And uh, we stitched him up. Everybody got a little bit of practice in stitchy, cause we all have to be cross trained, right? Harry, I told him, Harry, every time you shave, you're gonna remember who everybody was on this team. <laughs> <laughs> um, we I
1: we, uh, uh, we have a couple questions, or maybe just one question. I think. Let me get to this real quick. And for those of you who are listening on uh, Spotify or iTunes or something else, there was a moment when um, Ruben said, "Harry is." Uh, and then he mouthed fucked up. Just so you know why Jack <laughs> laughed after that. And Reuben, uh, you, you are more than welcome to maintain your own sense of propriety here. But just so you know, uh, this is this channel is not for kids. So you can you can say whatever you want to say. Um, um, Alex, thank you very much for your. Oh, also everybody, um, if you're listening this or watching us. Please subscribe, uh, please uh, like the, uh, please hit the notification bell, please like it. And, you know, leave some comments below the video uh, when, when it's all said and done because it really helps us get exposure. And more important than Jack and I getting exposure, it helps men like Ruben. Uh, people like Ruben and, and some of the other guests we've had on whose, whose stories really need to be heard. They deserve to be told. I mean, Ruben, you, you, I mean, you're a hero. You know and 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 i know that it i know that this is the thing and and it's the same way that you know you kind of felt when uh you know you received the compliment um from from kittleson is that you do what you do you don't think anything about what you do it's your job right kittleson did the same thing he did what he did he it, it didn't he didn't think of himself in any particular terms so when he you know, says, I'd follow you anywhere. That's just one man telling another man, I'd follow you anywhere. But for you, because you respect him so much, right? You respect him so much. It it brings so much to the table for you. And yet you're giving us a a similar type of experience by honoring us, you know, by, by coming on and talking to us and talking to our viewers and things like that.
2: And, and we, we stood on your shoulders, Ruben. You and, and Pappy and all those guys, we stood on your shoulders. And that's why we were able to do the things that we did, you know, Dave and I did in, uh, over in the Middle East.
1: Yeah. Um, so let me get to this. Uh, Alex says, uh, audio is low. So we're, tra- we're trying to deal with that right now. Um, and he says, thoughts on the Portland situation. I mean, uh, Ruben, do you, you know, especially, you know, Coming from Cuba, even though you left when you were young, and and spending these different, you know, the, all this time in these different locations, I mean, do you have any comments about like Portland or 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 modern? I mean, we don't want to get too political on this because we we don't want to our our we don't want to divide our viewers. Um, but do you do you have any thoughts in terms of let's say counterinsurgency warfare, guerrilla warfare, revolution, things like that, in, in what's going on in Portland or America today?
3: Mm. I do, and you're right, we don't want to get into divisive situations. The country's divided enough as it is. But here's the only point I would like to make, and I think I mentioned something about this to Jack when we talked on the telephone some weeks back. I have all the admiration in the world for the guys who are going over there now and have been going over there. Why? Because the army is so much smaller, and these guys are doing multiple tours going back again, and again, and again. And I, right now, it's very fashionable to say thank you for your service. When we came back, there was no thank you for your service. As a matter of fact, during one of my trips, when I landed at Travis Air Force Base, and they were taking us in buses to the the civilian air terminal, they put two big MPs in the bus, and the bus had bars on the windows. And I was wondering why. And as we pulled out of the base, people were throwing tomatoes and eggs and calling us everything in the book. And I guess the MPs and the bars were there so we wouldn't get out and start kicking a bunch of ass. (laughs) But the guys today are not getting what they deserve. You know, we got these guys who are committing suicide at the rate of 20-some a month, 22, 28 a month, every month. Every month. It, Ruben,
1: it's God. twenty-two a day. It's twenty-two a day right now.
3: They yeah. Oh man, of course, and I have read, but they deserve every bit of our support, every bit of it. And it's not enough to say thank you for your service. That's lip service. You know, get out there and complain about the service at the VA. Complain about the fact that that the army's so small that these guys are having to go back and again and again and again, you know, that wears on you. Uh-huh. That wears on you. There's some people who can take it, but there's some people who cannot, because they have this romanticized idea of what comeback in military services. And I think I said something of like this to Jack in my in my resume. A military life is not a career. It's not a job. It's a way of life. Uh-huh. It's a way of life. And you are dependent on the guy who's to you, right? Dependent on you guys to you. When I had a basic training company in Jackson, South Carolina, I went 18 months without a, a wall at a time when people were going a wall all the time. And they sent some guy from human resources in Washington to follow me around in my company. And he said, you know, the only difference I because they thought I was lying about not having any AWOL. But the only difference I see is, is that you talk to your men and you explain to them why they're doing this. And I used to tell them, look, I'm not when the shit hits the fan, I don't have time to tell you, can you please load your machine M60 and go around over there on that side? I got to say, right side covered. That's it. That's all I'm going to say. I expect you're going to have that machine gun ready to work and it's functioning and you got ammo, and you know what you need to do. There isn't time during combat to explain things to you. Uh-huh. And I used to spend time with my men and tell them that. These were basic trainees. They were coming in right out of the street. They didn't know any. You got to educate him. You got to train him. You got to put him into the right mentality. And that's what military service is. You got to be in the right mentality. This is my job. This is what I got to do and there's no hesitation, I got to do it because the other guy is going to do it. If he gets you in his sights, he's yep. going to pull the yep. um, support see here. Support the guys. Do all you can for them. When they come home, do all you can for them. They, especially over there with all those roadside bombings and all that stuff. They have a hard road to hoe over there. Mm -hmm. I really do believe in, I think I said this to to Jack, there's a tougher war than we ever fought in Vietnam. There were periods of times in Vietnam where yeah, it got rough, but the fact of the matter is that it's, you know, long periods of burden with seconds and minutes of panic. That's all there is. And I think it's like that in just about every war. But the guys over there, they're catching hell because they're doing so many tours. And some of these guys are reservists who are being sent over there. Uh They're not prepared, they're not ready up here, Uh especially for guerrilla warfare. So please support the troops.
1: Thank you um thank you hammer and nails for the donation we really appreciate it there was no question uh attached to that um awareness scripts thank you very much for the donation um he says amazing how sf is the most decorated high casualty soft in the united states arsenal from the oss to vietnam cold war and GWAT." proud of our boys
2: and ruben you sure. had mentioned that you know after your tour your second tour to vietnam you had a basic training uh, company assignment back in uh, Fort Jackson, went back to Panama, uh, did some training in Puerto Rico and San Salvador. Um, maybe we go and talk about, you know, afterwards you got sent to Camp Rudder uh, to be a ranger instructor with Dick Meadows.
3: Yeah, Dick was there. He had one He had one committee, I had the other. And then later on I became the three for the for the operations there in, in Camp Rudder. Originally it was just the Florida Ranger Camp Swamp Face. And then they named it after one of the heroes from uh, Point de Hoc, where the Rangers climbed up the, hit, up the cliff and attacked the German artillery. And it was named there. In, I got a picture somewhere, maybe I should send it to you, of some of the guys who, who had been Rangers and attacked at Point de Hoc. Oh yeah. Name me Camp Rudder.
1: Yeah, if you send that to us, we'll put it on our Patreon for our subscribers uh, for only $1 a month.
3: <laughs> I'll, I'll send it to you. I got it somewhere. Just that over the years, you accumulate so much stuff. Sometimes I'm going through something. Oh, there is. Where is <laughs> it? And where has it been?
2: And Not they only- told they told you and, and Dick you weren't going to get promoted because you had you had been hanging out in special forces for too long.
3: Well, what happened there was, all of a sudden we got a we got a visit from a guy from human resources in Washington, and he called Dick Meadows and me and uh, what was the other guy? I'll think of it in a minute. And he said. If you tell anybody this, I'll call you a liar, but you guys are not gonna get promoted to major, you're too old. We were older than the average captain. He said, the army is going to focus on younger people in order to be able to have the officers for the long run. At that time, there was a concept that we were gonna be fighting the Russians in Germany. and It was gonna be urban warfare. And you guys are older; you're not going to get promoted. So I looked at Dick Meadows. He looked at me, and we said, "Okay." As a matter of fact, I went over to the PX. We had a little PX there at Camp Rudder, and there was a set of major oak leaves, and I wrote on them, not for the over-the-bunch game. <laughs> and uh, Christmas rolled around about, uh, oh, and I guess nine, ten months later. And I was out in I was in uh, Eglin, the city, buying a present for my wife. And when I walked in, the lady, I was in uniform. And the lady said, Captain Garcia, your wife says to please call home. She says, it's not an emergency. Don't worry. The kids are okay. So uh, I called her and she said, the Sergeant Major just called. He said, as soon as you get back, the colonel wants to see you. So I come back. I bought her present. I came back, and I went to Sergeant Major first before going to go see the colonel. Sergeant Major, what the hell is going on? See, Sergeant Major always knows what's going on. He gets a second hand. He said, I can't tell you, sir. I said, come on, Sergeant Major. Don't let me walk in there blind. What the hell is going on? He said, I'll tell you part of it. And I said, what? He said, you and Dick Matter were being promoted to Major Effective 1 February." I said, okay, great. So now I go in there, I know what the Colonel's gonna say. He says, Captain Garcia, sit down. He said, you've been selected for Command and General Staff. I said, I wasn't even supposed to get promoted. He says, yeah, well, you're getting that too. So I ended up going to the School of the Americas in Panama to attend the commanding General Staff course there with Latin American officers and some officers from the United States, even including one Air Force officer. And then when I finished and graduated, they decided to keep me there to be an instructor because I spoke the language. So I stayed there for another year. Then when I came back, I became the XO of the 2nd Battalion of the 5th Special Forces Group under Colonel McClure. And I was with him for about six months. And then the guy who was running what well, we used to be called blue light and now become the special operations training. And I went out to Mud Lake and took over that. We still call the blue light. As a matter of fact, I got my plaque right there. Hold on. I'll get it. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah.
2: What Ruben's talking about is that they, they retained the name blue light. And actually it was to make, it was kind of a deception to make the public think that blue light was still active because it was a cover for Delta Force. And if you look at old news articles from 1979 or so, you'll find the, the talk about this new counterterrorism unit at Bragg called Blue Light. And when really, yeah, it's interesting.
1: Oh, that's, oh, so there we go. Uh, can you raise it? up? Oh, yeah. Uh, you can pull it back a little bit. Uh, that's amazing.
2: Ruben, where, where's your nickname, El Cid? Where does that come from?
3: Oh, somebody... You know, I'm Hispanic. So somebody had knew about Rodrigo or something or other from Spain who had been El Cid, and they nicknamed me that. <laughs> uh,
2: I wanted to ask you, before we talk about Blue Light a little bit, um, since you were at School of the Americas for a year, what do you make of the accusations that have been leveled that like it's an assassin school, that we train death squads there and this sort of thing?
3: Well, you gave me permission. Bullshit. (laughs) Bullshit. The officers who go there are usually major, lieutenant, colonels, and colonels. If they don't know their business by now, they're really the Latin American ones that go there, go there to get a feather in their cap. They want to be able to go back and say, I attended a military course with the United States. And that is good for their promotion list. And there's nothing like that. As a matter of fact, they're so out of shape most of them, they couldn't make a good assassin.
1: <laughs> did, you, uh, did you or Dick Meadows ever find out why you did get promoted to major? Like who made that decision? How did that change?
3: Well, eventually uh, this officer who told us that he, would, he wouldn't admit that he had told us that basically said that the army was concentrating on younger people. Uh-huh. They didn't want to be promoting older guys like us I. I was over 35. Uh-huh. I think Dick was probably around 36, 37. And they just weren't going to waste the rank on us. We'd done our, our job, time to say goodbye. And uh, But Dick got promoted, I got promoted to major. And then I went to the command and general staff course. And Dick retired a couple of years later. And then he went to work for uh, Charlie Beckwith as a consultant with Delta back at Brack. As a matter of fact, when I was out of Mud Lake with what we still call blue light, Dick came out to talk to me one day. I think he was doing a little bit of spying for Beckwith because they yeah. were worried. This was the time that the hostages, seventy-nine, eighty, the hostages in Iran. And they were getting ready to go. And Beck was, I think, was a little paranoid about anybody else stepping in his bailiwick. Uh But we weren't, we were training people. We were teaching snipers. We were teaching assault of aircraft, trains, hostage rescue. We had a 360 degree firehouse made out of tires. The Sergeant Stevens, you know who he is, created. What he did, I thought was a great innovation. There was a, a place in, in Fayetteville called Kelly Tire. And Stevens went out there and he said, what do you do with your blemished tires? And what do you do with the junk? He said, hey, we take it out in the ocean, we dump it. He said, send it to me out of break. He took and created a big square and he put poles in the middle and then put the tire and pack them with dirt. So now you got a wall of tire with a second wall of tire in between them, and you could go in there and then with wood and canvas create and, and simulate any the inside of any building that you were going to attack, and throw in a flashbang and then come in. The only guy we ever had wounded out there was he left his foot out there when he threw the flashbang, and he took a piece of shit in the, in his leg, but. It was a wonderful training cycle. because then you could, when the tire got all shut up on the inside, you just turned it a little bit. And it, it was his idea. He deserves credit for that. And we were out there and we trained the sniper. Sniper, anything under 700 yards was a headshot. Anything over 700 yards was torso shot. Uh-huh. And... We were shooting so much with .45s that we were cracking the, the guns. Wow. And sending them back to Springfield. Every, everybody who came out there in the two week course shot 1,200 rounds to a 45. And we kept it simple. At one point in time, General Magma called me in, said, we got some people here who thinks they can put up these great automated targets. I said, I only got one question. What's the turnaround time when one of these things break? Uh-huh. Oh, about six weeks. I said, I can't go over six weeks. I'm doing 12 courses a year. Uh-huh. Right now we got it hooked up with suspension line that we get surplus from the quartermaster. And when the line breaks, we tie a knot in it and we pull it. We don't have to fill out six forms. We never got automated out there. We kept it with, keep it simple. Yeah. You can. Could you talk a little bit about the
2: training curriculum? Because like uh, people who went to SOT like speak so highly of that training. Um, this was, and, and you have to keep in mind for our viewers. Obviously, you know all of this, Ruben, but. This was like early on in the years of counterterrorism. A lot of these ideas about throwing flashbangs into rooms, drawing a pistol from a concealed holster and firing, like that was not normal stuff in the military at all. And it was the blue light guys, it was the, the guys at Mott Lake who helped innovate a lot of that.
3: There are things that you learn as you do training. For example, this may sound kind of simple, but it's a fact our people have a hesitation when they encounter a female terrorist there's some is mama is their daughter is their girlfriend is their wife so we had to overcome that so we started in a room where one of the targets that would pop up would be a woman with a machine gun and we would start with a bb pistol believe it or not the initial training was with a bb pistol and there are things you have to learn and you have to overcome. You have to learn to judge distances. When we were training out there, we had no money. We were robbing Peter to pay Paul. And General McMull came out one time with General Schumacher, who I believe was the chief of the trade training. And uh, we had like a, a window thing like a repelling tower, but it wasn't repelling. It was like steps and then like a window. With a oh, like a facade. Come. Yeah. And the sniper would shoot. So I went up there and we had two cinder blocks up here like this, about this far apart in my head. And I said, General, if you look behind you, at about 700 yards, is two snipers. On my command, they will fire. And he realized that I was gonna stay right there when they did the firing. And he went, but by that time I had said execute a third time. It's in the box book. He gave us two million bucks (laughs) to improve the training. Long time ago. Long time ago. Good memory, good people. You know, I don't miss the army, but I I miss the people. I miss the people. I miss Henry. David Decker, Maurice Evans, Oakland, all the guys who were willing to give their life and their all. And by their life, I don't mean just dying. I mean their living life. Right. right. You know, because like I said, it's a way of life. It's not a job. It's not a career. They gave it all. They were there. Kittleson, Dick Meadows. I think Dick died of some illness. I don't know what it was.
2: Ruben, I'm glad you're here, though, to, to tell their story.
3: Well, I'm not really sure what you're referring to.
2: Well, they, I mean, they, you're still here and you're around to be able to tell their story because otherwise, I mean, no one, no oh, one would.
3: Or tell their story. Well, you know, you can never do justice to that. You yeah. can never do that. I went to the war with my youngest son. Where What I done with my boys was that when they graduated from high school, we were going a to trip together, whatever they wanted to do. And David, my youngest, wanted to go to Washington. He wanted to go to the Smithsonian Museum. And of course, while there, we went to the wall. You know, when you look, there's 58,000 plus names there and over 200,000 that were wounded, left part of their body laying there somewhere. Look at Roy Benavides, wow. middle wow. of the winner. I don't want to get too serious here, please forgive me, but I get somewhat irate. When a Michael Jackson dies, and God bless him, the whole world stops and you cannot turn on the television without hearing about Michael Jackson. Roy Benavides gets wounded 52 times in a period of about an hour and a half. He's cut to the bone. He's put in a bag. They think he's dead. His jaw is broken. He can't talk. He can't tell him I'm alive. Get me the hell out of this bag. He dies. And nobody ever even mentions it. And the same thing with any of those other guys, to lesser degrees or another. The last time I saw Roy, I was doing a parachute demonstration where he was going to give a talk in Clewiston, Florida. And we saw each other, and he gave me his book. And here's what he wrote up. Wrote on it. I don't know if you can read it. Can you read it?
2: Master Sergeant Ruben Garcia, or Major, retired Ruben Garcia, I have he traveled some heavy duty.
3: duty. Go, go ahead, Ruben. Please read it for us. He wrote, to Major Ruben Garcia retire, we have traveled heavy duty trails together. See you again. See, this guy... I gave that book to somebody to read the other day. They couldn't believe it that somebody would do that. You know, he he didn't have to jump in that helicopter and go out there and pull those guys out.
2: I've been told told that Roy was uh, like a completely, if you were to meet him, like a completely normal down-to-earth guy, you would never think he was like a Medal of Honor recipient.
3: Not at all, not at all, not at all, down to earth. And by the way, without getting political, when you look at that face, you cannot deny who he is and what he is. And when people start talking and becoming ethnic conscious, let's call it that, let's not forget, you know, Hispanic men and women have been fighting for this country for a long time. 131 people, men named Garcia fought for the confederate. 340 some fought for the Union. A Puerto Rican regiment in Korea was the most decorated regiment there. And they were the last ones to leave Korea. So please stop the division. Stop the division. There was a poster during, I have it in my phone. I don't know if I can bring it up. There was a poster during World War II. Let me see if I can get it. Yeah, here it is. I don't know if you can see that. It's Uncle Sam in a Mexican hat. And it Mm -hmm. says, I'll read it to you. I can't have glasses. It says, Wait a minute, cancel. We are all Americans, let's fight for victory. And in Spanish, luchamos por la Victoria. This is the, four of my uncles fought for the United States Army. They were Cubans during World War II. We're not just one group, we're all immigrants here. Unless your name is Geronimo. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Ruben, when I was in fifth group, I served, uh, I, I served with a, a Cuban American. He was on the uh, free fall team upstairs, upstairs from us. We used to jump together on uh, training exercises.
1: Ruben, being a Cuban American, do you have any, and, and I know that you left uh, Cuba Young, but in, in fighting these other locations where often it was Marxism or communism was the prevailing thing that we were fighting against. Do you you have any thoughts about sort of a resurgence of of Marxist, you know, popularity in the United States right now, you know, uh, communism kind of on the rise?
3: There's a tendency towards socialism. I believe it's simply because we are presently a frustrated people. I think most Americans are frustrated. Look what happened during 2008, one in every 15 homes was a foreclosure. I think the average American is looking around and he's saying, what the hell happened here? Uh-huh. i work worked all my whole life. I've done what I was supposed to do. I paid my taxes. I did what I was supposed to do. I served my country. And what am I leaving my kids? Nothing. We are so divided right now and going in so many directions that we simply don't know. And I think it's because we're frustrated. Frustrated people are not earning what they should be earning. Nothing is going the way it's supposed to be going. You know, I'm not gonna get into Trump versus Biden or whatever, but the bottom line is Trump got elected in my view, humble as it may be, because our Congress and our Senate was not doing their job. They weren't They weren't taking care of us. You know, jobs have been going out of this country for 30 years, not just recently. They've been going out of this country for 30 years. 30 years ago, I had a client who came to me and he said he owned a dressmaking business here in Miami. And he was he had a cutter, cut the patterns, put them in boxes, sent it to Guatemala where he was paying a seam for 50 cents an hour. Uh-huh. Now he uh-huh. didn't pay any tariff because it was US goods coming back. So it's been going on for a long time. And those people in Congress who've been getting their war chests contributions in order to get reelected, they haven't been looking out for us. And that's one of the things that frustrates me because I think something is going to happen where people are going to say, hey, you don't take care of me, I don't take care of you. Goodbye. There's some basic things. You know, a man needs a roof over his head. He needs to be able to eat. He needs to be able to provide for his family. Those are basic things. That's all there is to it. And if you're not watching out, you can get elected and you now have medical for the rest of your life just because you serve six years in the Senate. You got your own private Social Security. You're taken care of. Nothing to worry about. Your family's well done. Joe Biden gets his son a job in the Ukraine. Well, good luck with that. He wasn't qualified for that. Making for $50,000 a month where the hell that come from? That's because daddy was who he was. So if you're taking care of yours, you got to take care of me. Uh I don't want the the whole pie. I just want my little slice of the
0: pie.
3: (laughs) Uh I just want my little slice of the pie. Let me have a little bite. And they're not doing that. And uh, I'm sorry, I got off on the road. No, uh,
2: that's, that's well said, Ruben. It really is. And there are reasons why people are upset and why we have people drifting in these political extremes because as you said our our government is not taking good care of us right um, and, and
1: it also benefits the politicians to keep people divided because that because it, it doesn't matter if you're talking about republicans or democrats none of them have been taking care of us they you know and so as long as we're fighting each other and we're not holding them accountable they're happy about that
3: and you know is anybody stopping to think when somebody like sanders or anybody else says we're gonna have free medical, free education. How about jobs so we can pay the taxes so you can pay for that education and that free medical? Somebody's gotta pay for it. The government hasn't got any money and if they keep printing money without any funds, man, are we in trouble? Uh We've been in trouble for a long time, but are we gonna be even worse? You can't have anything free if you don't have people who are paying taxes. I don't know where Sanders was getting that from, but, in Warren, God bless him. If they could pull it off, maybe they got a big piggy bank that I don't know about.
2: Yeah, Ruben, Re- uh, I'm, I'm gonna ask if you can stick with us for a bonus segment after, but um for just like 10 minutes. But before we kind of wrap up um, with the main portion with this interview, I did wanna ask you about your post-service military career because I think it's really interesting. You You retired at, I think you said 42 on April Fool's
3: Day, 1980. That's correct, yeah. I was supposed to retire on the 6th of April, but I went over there and there was a private there. That's who was running the place where they gave you your papers. And I said, I'm supposed to leave here on the 6th, but I, I wanna leave today. He said, yeah, here you go. So I retired on April Fool's Day. I looked around for several jobs. I got interviews in several places. But you know, I kept meeting these people in three piece suits, and I said, it felt like I knew them. And then I realized there's no difference between a corporate in a three piece suit and a general in a green suit. Uh They're both corporates, they're both corporations. That's all they are. And I'm just a tool. The Army is a toolbox, the Army's got micrometers, calipers. They make it to general. And then they got guys like me, I'm a sledgehammer or a crowbar. (laughs) That's that's who we were, that's who we are. And so I kept getting interviewed and I kept saying to myself, what am I doing? I left the army and I'm gonna be falling into the same thing. Why? Because the higher somebody's up in the ladder, who does he promote? whether it's in a company or in the army. The guy who came along the way, he did. If you're a general who was a platoon, a platoon leader, company commander, battalion commander, that's who you're going to promote. You're not going to promote the maverick who was in special forces, jumping out of airplanes and eating snakes. That ain't who you're going to promote. Right. If you're in the corporate ground, you're going to promote the guy who plays golf or tennis with you. And so I didn't want to do that. So I decided I'd go to law school. So I went to law school at Western Michigan University, Thomas Cooley Law School. And then I came down to Florida, started practicing criminal. I first tried to get a job with the DEA. I think I told you about that, but they told me I was too old. I was probably in better shape than any of them. You know, I could, if I ran the 20 mile dragon race in Fort Bragg in August in 90 degree weather, and came in seventh for my age group, 35 to 45. I knew I was in better shape than any of those DEA agents. And then Very, I just
2: also so, an avid skydiver, I should point out.
3: Yeah, I I gave that up about 10 years ago, eight years ago. No, 10 now. I stopped jumping in August, no, January the 29th, 2010. So it's been 10 years, yeah. A little over 10 years at 7,186 jumps,
1: Ruben, so if you applied to the DEA and you were talking to other like corporations and things like that, does that mean that law school was not really on your mind when you retired or or prior to retiring?
3: Kind of interesting that you mentioned that because here's how, when I first went to Okinawa, I got assigned to some little outpost somewhere in the island. It was called Machinado, I think it was. I'm not sure. I don't remember. I may be wrong. It's been a long time. And I remember reading a book. We had like a little room full of books, and I loved to read. And I remember reading a book that was called Never Plead Guilty. And after I finished reading the book, I said, You know, I could do that. So after I got out, I went to law school. I didn't want to work for anybody else ever again. Yeah. Nobody was. Again, going to write an efficiency report on me, especially somebody who knew less about my job than me. So I went to law school, came down here, solo practice from day one.
1: Solo practice.
3: Solo practice. I don't have a secretary. I don't let anybody do any research. I do it all myself. I read every piece of paper, everything. Why? Because when I walk into a courtroom, I know the subject matter, I know the case. I have had cases where I've given a 45 minute closing argument without looking at a note. Why? Because I did the work. And that's what I plan to do till the last day when I can't do it anymore.
2: What kind of cases do you typically try?
3: Well, in the Southern District of Florida, the majority of the cases are drug cases. But however, you do have some Medicare fraud you have welfare cases where people commit fraud you have bank robbery and in 2006 to 2009 i handled what was called the turnpike murder case where it was a drug case that went wrong and an entire family was killed including a two and a four year old boy
2: this is the famous case where the the hitman well, wasn't this, they made a documentary about this, didn't
3: they? Yeah, they, 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 they read a lot of articles around it. I keep waiting for them to do the movie, but yeah. I don't, I don't talk about the specifics of any client's case. But mm-hmm. it was, it was uh, the mother, the father, and the two children were killed. It was helping... It was tried in West Palm Beach. I tried it along with another lawyer by the name of Jim Isenberg, who's a very talented lawyer, very good lawyer.
1: And did you when you before you went into law school or while you're in law school, when did you decide that you want to do criminal prosecution?
3: It's kind of strange. You know, I, I don't think I have a good answer for that. I had a professor. who was teaching criminal law procedure and the rules of procedure. And I told him I was thinking of doing that. He said, I'll tell you this about criminal law. Every case takes a little chip of your heart. He said, and you better be careful because the scar tissue starts to develop. But I've tried to avoid that. And I think I've been able to. Each case is an individual thing. I owe a lot to my client. The ethics, the professional manner in which you handle the case and I never talk about any of my cases to the press absolutely not never no matter what
1: and, and why prosecution and not defense or I mean is it just does no, it
3: I walk? do I do defense you I'm do defense. defense yeah I do I don't do any prosecution okay you do, you do defense yeah okay. that's yeah yeah. As a matter of fact, I applied for a judgeship one time in Broward County. And later on, somebody whispered in my ear that the reason I wasn't selected was because they were afraid I was going to be a hanging judge because I'd been in the military. Really?
1: Even as a defense attorney?
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's just what people think. It's
1: the reputation, yeah, or the preconceived ideas.
3: Exactly. That's exactly right. They are, he was a soldier. He was an officer in the military, he's going to be a hanging judge. Yeah. At that time, I had done nothing but about 12 years of defense work. Yeah. But people have their ideas and you can't change them. Yeah. When I moved to Davie, Florida, somebody decided they didn't want a Hispanic in the neighborhood. They would put white supremacist literature on the windshield of my car really I, on a Sunday morning and there would be eggs splattered all over the front of my house and I wash it out before my wife and my kids got up to see it and but you know I decided let him worry about it I'm fine I'm earning a living I got my health I had a stroke seven years ago and 29 days later I walked out of the hospital and I said some casual words to the clot in my brain, which included this, <laughs> fuck the clot. I'm going to win. And I am still practicing law. Amazing. Um, Ruben, this yeah.
2: whole thing is just such an incredible story.
1: <laughs> it really is. I mean, it really is. You're just such an amazing human being. Um, Let's see here, we got a couple of questions and we need to get to before we close out. Uh, Ian Hutchison, thank you very much. Uh, sorry guys, Like Junior, maybe I missed it. Where's Ruben or re- from originally? Uh, no Spanish from the home. And what language did you study at DLI or uh, did uh, Special Forces send you to a language school?
3: I did a little bit of French while I was in Okinawa, but I never used it to, to tell you the truth. Because those of us that were learning about Okinawa, half the team took French, half the team took Vietnamese. I tried the French, but I didn't have a good ear for it, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah. And uh, as we mentioned earlier in the beginning, um, Ruben is originally from Cuba. Did you speak Spanish in the house growing up? Was that something that you did?
3: That's the only language my mother spoke. Spoke Spanish. She never wanted us to lose that, which I'm grateful for. And yeah, we, I guess you could say said, my first language, native yeah. with mom.
1: Uh, Ralph Reed, thank you very much for the donation. Uh, Awareness with Chris, uh, thank you for the donation. What was the actual difference between Delta and blue light as far as counterterrorism and training?
3: Okay. I think the charter for Delta, and I was never with Delta, I got to say that right off the bat. The charter for Delta was operational. Originally the charter for blue light was operational, but then when Delta came active, that stopped and then we became solely a special operations training. Counterrorist, hostage rescue, that kind of stuff. And I think that's what worried Colonel Beck with. He thought maybe we were gonna try and sneak into the operational phase of it. But Excellent. It
1: Excellent. was quick. Um, Brad, I'm sorry. Did I interrupt
3: you? Okay,
1: uh, Brad Orc. Thank you very much. Um, thanks for the donation. Ever defend some? Oh, as an attorney, have you ever defend someone you knew was guilty, and how did you deal with that?
3: You know, under our system of justice, everybody defends a defense or deserves a defense. And what people have to remember is this: when someone is acquitted the jury doesn't say he's innocent. The jury just says not guilty, which basically means the government who had the burden of proof of proving the guilt failed to do so. Right. So if the case is weak or if the evidence is insufficient or if you're just sitting there and you weren't paying attention as a juror and you decide, you know, I don't like the government. I don't like that lawyer, which I think happens. You know, I tell juries you may find me repeating myself several times. And the reason is because I don't know if you're listening. You may have had an argument with your wife this morning. You may be upset at your child because you caught him smoking marijuana. Your car may have been wrecked. You may have lost your job. I don't know if you're really, if your brain is here when I'm saying something that is key and important. But the basic of it is, a jury doesn't say that guy is innocent. A jury just says, You didn't prove it to Uh my satisfaction Uh beyond reasonable doubt. And when it's a criminal case, the standard is very high, beyond a reasonable doubt. Not any doubt, but a reasonable doubt. Yeah. It doesn't matter to me if the guy, I may think he's guilty, but if he says, I'm not guilty, I didn't do it. And I want you to defend me. My job is to make the government jump through the hoops to prove it. And if they cannot prove it, hey, then they shouldn't have brought the Diamond in the first place. Right.
1: And I think defense attorneys in the United States, you know, get a really bad reputation, but people don't understand that if you're innocent, you want a defense attorney who's going to fight with you, fight for you with every fiber and through any means. And simply put, they have to fight for everybody in that exact same way because they don't know off, you know, who's innocent, who's guilty. And it's not their decision, you know.
3: Well, do you remember, remember when, uh, uh, what was the guy, Thomas More. Thomas More, his son-in-law wanted to get rid of Cromwell. And he said he would do whatever he needed to do to get rid of Cromwell, even if it was breaking the law and Cromwell. He said, oh, I would join the devil to get rid of Cromwell. And Thomas More said, and when the devil turns around and comes after you, who will help you? Uh-huh. And you? The government is a very powerful force. It really is. They have all the resources and everything that they need to do case. My job is to investigate the case. You don't win the case in the courtroom. You win the case by your preparation before you get into the courtroom. And if, and if you learn everything you need to learn, you know, and you look to see for where the weaknesses are in the government's case. And those weaknesses are not weaknesses that I'm going to take advantage of. They're there because they're there. Uh-huh. And I owe it to the client ethically to do the best I can. And point them out. And then you as the juror, you decide. You decide. Did they prove the case or not? And you know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. The police do make mistakes; they do. How many people are being exonerated now because of DNA? Uh Even people who were made to confess. Uh Now, something with DNA in a rape case, the DNA is the proof. But before, it used to be just an identification. And as a lawyer, you learn that the worst. The worst evidence is ID by a human being who at the moment that something happened is excited, is scared, is frightened. You can't rely on that. Uh-huh. You can't many people have been pointed out, especially people that we're not overly familiar with, such as Hispanics or African Americans. There is no doubt that there's been a great deal of mistakes made in I think as a defense lawyer, I my job is to create that bar that the government's gonna have to jump uh-huh. over uh-huh. and they have to do a good job. If they do a good job, that case that we were talking about, about the murders on the turnpike, I lost that case. The government did its job. Uh-huh. They proved to the jury that they were guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And for me, it's never personal. I will shake the hand of the prosecutor, and then go on. But I try to do the best I can.
2: Ruben, this has been uh, an incredible interview, and uh, I'm so glad that you know you were able to come and spend some time with us tonight. And with you know, there's like 75, 80 people watching this live, and many more will watch it uh, in the subsequent weeks. Um, and I'm just so happy that they're going to get to hear your story. Um, I I hope that I can steal like maybe 10 more minutes of your time afterwards, if that's okay. Okay. And, and so that's going to be the show for tonight, guys, episode 53. Um, Next week, we're going to have Joe Goldberg on the show who's a retired CIA officer um, worked in their disinformation office. uh, And I don't know how much I'm going to be able to uh, twist his arm and get him to tell us, but Joe's a very interesting person. So we'll be talking to him next Friday. And otherwise, you know, please like, share, subscribe this video, leave us some comments. And if you're interested in supporting the stream, there's a link to our Patreon down below. Um,
1: so that's it. We're, uh, we're also on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, SoundCloud. So, you know, uh, if, if you don't have time to watch the whole thing uh, or in the future, because you probably watch the whole thing if you've gotten to this point. Uh, but in the future, you can check us out on any one of those podcast platforms also.
2: All right, Ruben, thanks again. And uh, we will talk to you in uh,
1: just two seconds. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com.
0: It's my little escape.
1: Now Judy's the life of the party.
0: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
1: Whoa, take it easy, Judy.